Hi, I'm Bruce Walsh, publisher of University of Regina Press and also the host of How Books Happen. We're the show about the challenges and joys of making books. That's book publishing. We're also on episode three, and this edition is literally ripped from the headlines. The entire show is devoted to a feature interview with an important new voice on the Canadian literary scene. And he's a guy with a very timely story. Ayub Nuri was born in the Kurdish region of Iraq and raised there until his family was forced to flee to Iran. He eventually made it back home, mastered English just in time to work with journalists covering the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and then turned that into a reporting career of his own. Ayub's memoir, Being Kurdish in a Hostile World, is published by University of Regina Press. It tells of living as a Kurd in a war zone. That includes Ayub being maimed in an artillery attack as a child launched by the troops of Saddam Hussein. That attack also killed his grandmother. But there's much, much more in this beautifully written book. It covers nearly two generations of conflict in Iraq right up until the present day. In addition to being an important new author, Ayub is also an in-demand reporter. Many media outlets, from the New York Times to NPR to Al Jazeera, are seeking his expertise on the Kurdish referendum in Iraq that's coming up at the end of September. The people there are being asked if they want to separate and form their own independent nation. It's a proposal which, as you'll hear in the interview, Ayub heartily approves. Although he's graduated from refugee status to full Canadian citizenship and now lives here, he returns often to Iraq to work as a foreign correspondent. During a break from the war zone, I caught up with him in Toronto. I began by asking why he is reporting from one of the most dangerous places on earth. I could not sit here in Canada and uh, witness the war against ISIS uh, on TV screen. So I had to be there and I was working as an editor for the English service of a Kurdish news network. But I was out in the field very often, sometimes once a week or twice a week, in different, uh, on different front lines, covering the ISIS war, the uh, international coalition effort to defeat this group, the Kurdish uh, forces in their battle against ISIS and also the Iraqi forces. So I wanted to see it and uh, basically tell the world what was happening, what this war was doing to Iraq and uh, to the Kurdistan region of Iraq, to its people, to the environment, to the village life, to the countryside, and all the aspects of that war I've been covering for almost two years mm -hmm. on the ground. And when you say you're in the field, can you give us a little description of, of what that in fact means? In the field means uh, I would uh, leave the main city, the Kurdish capital, to go to a specific front line where Kurdish forces, uh, along with coalition forces, often Canadian forces whom I met uh, out in the field, or Iraqi forces, were launching uh, an offensive against ISIS positions on a in a specific area on a specific day. So it would take about an hour or two hours of driving through dangerous areas. Mm -hmm. There would be the fear of uh, explosive, uh, roadside bombs, car bombs, and uh, spend a whole day or a whole night with these forces battling ISIS for hours. A really dangerous war, 
and uh, very brutal enemy. I mean, there were not many ISIS militants. The first time I went uh, and joined one of the offensives, I was shocked to see no ISIS militants. One that I saw was one that blew himself up a few meters away from me and killed two Kurdish uh, soldiers. And then I realized they are so brutal, only a few of them can hold back an entire army because they turn everything into a time bomb. They turn every door, every window, every object on the street, every stone could be a bomb. That's how they do their fight. And uh, so that was a specific day. And I saw a lot of death and destruction. I would see entire homes going up in flames, entire neighborhoods destroyed in Mosul. And almost every time I saw someone getting killed, or some bodies, uh, corpses on the, out in the field left to rot under the sun or an ISIS militant blowing himself up. Or sometimes I would meet a soldier and 24 hours later I get the news that he was dead or he was killed. I would interview in February. I interviewed a restaurant owner in Mosul, for example, in the heart of Mosul. I went there one early morning before sunrise and he had just opened his restaurant and he was happy. The only restaurant, the only sign of life in Mosul, in one side of Mosul. But in my heart, having covered wars in the Middle East for 15 years, I knew this is a dangerous place. Militants would make it a target. So I had a long conversation with him about 20 minutes about his life and the ISIS and the restaurant and all that. Three days later, ISIS targeted him, killed him and his brother and 13 other people. So that was what a normal day was like for me out in the field covering the war. You know, we hear so much about PTSD and, and what's happening with soldiers. I wonder what's happening with reporters. Like, what is the state of your own mental health at the moment after? I mean, that is beyond belief for for most people on the planet. Yes, that's true. I always say there's uh, there's uh, a lot of similarity between uh, uh, soldiers and war correspondents or reporters out in the field. And as I said, I, you, I covered the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 for a few years, then the bloody sectarian violence between Shia and Sunni groups in Iraq for some years. I must say it affected me very badly. And after that, I went to the United States to study. Uh, it would come back to me even when I was walking on the streets of Manhattan. And I remember clearly that uh, sometimes I would be walking on the pavement in Manhattan a car would slow down behind me to park and my heart would stop. I would think that now they would open the door and kidnap me. These must be militiamen. And I would go with friends to a restaurant and they would say, oh, can we sit in the patio or by the window? And I would always say, no, let's go to the very back in case there's a car bomb. It took some years to get over that. And then uh, I went back two years ago to cover the ISIS war. Now I'm sure it will come back to me. And I already had a bad dream. I, in Iraq, I never had bad dreams about ISIS in the last two years. When you are in the middle of it, you don't think about it. Just a few days ago, I had a really terrible dream. And then I said, oh, oh, it's coming back to me. I am in the peace and calm of Canada. And suddenly one dream is the start of more like such feelings. And are you are you seeking help? Um, will you seek help for that, or how will you how will you cope with this? Uh, I don't think I will seek help. I think the as I got over the earlier one, as I said, mm -hmm. uh, in the living in the U.S. for 
almost three years. I think it, I will get over it slowly. But for me, covering the war as a correspondent for 15 years is not uh, new. Being in a hostile environment, or as the title of the book says, in a hostile world, mm-hmm. it's not uh, new to me because I grew up uh, in a war zone. When I was a kid, uh, there was always one war after another. I am w- used to seeing destruction and bombs and deaths in my own family and the city and all that. So it's it's very it has a long history with me and everyone else in Kurdistan. So that's actually a good place to. That's where the book starts, really. I mean, the, actually, the book starts being Kurdish in a hostile world starts after the First World War. Do you want to give us a little history of of, of your people? And, uh, and, and and the role of Western powers in the creation of the situation we exist in today. Yes, uh, the Kurds uh, are the world's biggest uh, uh, nation without a state of uh, our own. And the reason is that uh, until 1918, the, in the whole of middle, the Middle East was uh, ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And then the Ottoman Empire was defeated by the French and the British in the First World War. They came to the region and carved out countries to the Arabs and Turks and everybody else, some countries, small, others, big. And the Kurds did not get a state. We did not get a state of our own. And, uh, I mean, if you ask most Kurdish people, or most Kurds, they would. Uh, this is what I like about the Kurdish people. We blame ourselves. We know that the British should have also given us a state because they ruled Iraq. Uh, but we were not united. It's one reason that we lost in 1918 was we were divided. There was a Kurdish man who named himself the King of Kurdistan and he fought the British and he declared a kingdom. It did not last long, probably only weeks or months, but no one else stood by him. And I don't blame the Kurds, uh, on the other hand, for being divided because it was a uh, historically people lived in villages isolated by huge mountains. They did not know what was happening a few miles down the road. Their world was that small village. Mm-hmm. So n- fast forward 100 years. Now we are in 2017. The Kurds have decided enough is enough, like a hundred years of waiting, a hundred years of paying the price of being attached together with Iraq by the British has come to an end. Iraq has become a failed state, nothing worked, all we received was prison and um, I mean imprisonment and mass killings and all that. So that's why the Kurdish region of Iraq is bracing itself for a major referendum in September for people to vote whether they want to stay with Iraq or to leave Iraq. And I think anyone in his right mind or right mind or her right mind must say yes to leaving Iraq. Uh, that's not a, that, that's that's not a uh, an objective uh, journalistic perspective, Ayub. <laughs> yes, I mean when it comes to that, I will put my journalism aside because I'm not writing a story. If I write a story or if I cover a news article, I will be objective as I've always been. But then I'm talking about the future of a nation. And I am Kurdish and I speak for the majority of the Kurdish people that we would like to have a, live a dignified life in our own country called Kurdistan. Right. And of course, uh, the British and the French divided uh, the people between uh, Syria, Iraq and Turkey. Yeah. And so this is uh, an independent 
uh, Kurdistan and Iraq is seen as a threat to both the Turks, who have been no friend of the Kurds, and the Syrians. Uh, so can you give us a little bit of uh, a sense of, of, of maybe some of the risks involved in, in making that, that uh, step towards independence? That's true. It comes with a lot. First of all, there has been a lot of opposition to the Kurdish independence movement and referendum. And the Kurdish uh, ruling party and president said in June that there will be a referendum in September. Since then, the entire region, including the United States and everyone else, delegation after delegation, called the Kurdish uh, government or they arrive in the capital and say, please postpone. They all say, we agree that you have the right to declare independence, to have your own state, we sympathize with you, but don't do a referendum or postpone it. It makes no sense. And others scare us by saying your neighbors are very hostile, they will, you will suffer. And we, the answer is we could, it cannot get worse than what the Kurds have been through for 100 years. Will they attack you? We've always been attacked. Will they kill you? We've always been killed. Will they put an economic boycott or sanction and close the, na- the borders? They have always done that. So that's the Kurdish pro-independence argument, is that we have seen every single threat that you make in reality in the past. So they say we must go ahead and uh, vote for an independence. And one of the other risks is that the Kurdistan will be a landlocked country. Mm-hmm. But then you, there are more than 40 landlocked countries in the world. Having access to sea has never been the prerequisite for a happy people. I always say, look at the kingdom of Bhutan. It's mm-hmm. always voted as the kingdom of happiness. It's much smaller than Kurdistan, m- much, much more poorer than Kurdistan, and it's landlocked and it's called the kingdom of happiness. So you don't need to be on the sea in order to be happy. You said that um, you grew up with um, war. And of course, this is, uh, not only do you cover the early history of of, uh, the Kurdish people, but also your own story um, as a boy growing up in, 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 and so can you tell us what that was like? I mean, you read, you write, so poignantly at one moment in the book about uh, not having going out and being a shoeshine boy and and your fingers freezing and you just it's a terrible situation that you found yourself in as a child yes I mean I was uh, as I mentioned in the book I was only uh, one year old when uh, Iraq invaded Iran which started a war that lasted eight years. Mm-hmm. For eight years, I, they were, uh, both countries bombed each other indiscriminately. They were fighting on the front lines, but then in order to cripple each other into submission, they were bombing the, the cities. It's called the, the War of the Cities. And I remember bombs falling on our town uh, almost every day. And one of those bombs actually uh, landed um, uh, on our farm. We had a farm outside town. And uh, one of the shrapnels hit my own leg. Uh, it took away half the knee, and my knee should, I mean, will expire soon in a few months or years to come. And it killed uh, also my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So we were one victim of this war. And then eight years of war and uh, fear, and every house, before they built the house, they made sure they had a, an imp- like a impenetrable uh, bunker underneath with heavy concrete and steel in order to hide from bombs. And then we had to run home from school every day because bombs were coming. And uh, 
I know many other people who lost family members or who were handicapped for good. And then eight years of that war ended and we thought that was it. The, the leader of Iraq or our dictator Saddam Hussein had learned his lesson and he would sit down quietly. But three, two, two years later, in 1988, the war ended. In 1990, he invaded Kuwait mm -hmm. and caused another major international war that put Iraq even in a worse situation than I had seen. The eight years of war uh, with Iran, we still had enough food to eat. Iraq was at its highest economic boom. Oil was flowing. Money was coming into the country. It is true that bombs, bombs were flying and we had to hide every now and then but we did not have shortage of food or water or clothes or anything. After 1991, the world community under the U.S. leadership and the U.N. said, we must punish this guy for invading Kuwait. So they put economic sanctions on Iraq. Everyone became hungry. There was no food, no tea, no bread, nothing. The only dream, sole dream of every man and woman in Iraq and Kurdistan was to uh, get enough food for that day. So that was the kind of life millions of people like me lived in Kurdistan and Iraq, one war after another. And then when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, I was no longer the small boy. I was uh, a journalist, but then I saw more war, more destruction, and I thought to myself, when will this ever end? And sectarian violence... And then it ended for a while. Then ISIS came, which was the peak of violence in Iraq that I have ever seen. Mm. After all that, and of course you, uh, you were also witness to Saddam Hussein's first gas attack against the Kurds, uh, which was uh, sort of a new level of violence against uh, a people. Can you can you speak a bit about that? Yes, uh, in 1988. Kurdish forces and Iranian forces managed to drive out Iraqi troops from my city, Halabja. And then it was a major humiliation for the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi army responded by dropping chemical bombs on our city. I was personally not there with my mother and uh, my siblings. We were inside a refugee camp behind the border, uh, an hour drive away behind the border in Iran. But my father my sister and one of my brothers were in Halabja that day. And uh, 5,000 people were killed in the matter of hours. Mm. And the regime was so sinister and brutal that before dropping the chemical bombs, they dropped uh, napalm, a major a kind of cluster bomb, into the ta city to force people to go into their homes and basement. And then the bombs came. That's how many people died. They were in their basements. The gas the uh, deadly nerve agents seeped into people's homes and killed everyone in their basement. So 5,000 people died. My father came back to the camp and found us. But then we lost hope that we would ever find my sister and my brother. Uh, and weeks later, we found my sister who had been saved with her husband. She was only 18 years old uh, by the Iranian army, picked up by a helicopter, which she had dropped next to a river that she could not uh, cross. And then my brother also had collapsed from exhaustion and picked up by the army and brought back to us. So we thought they were dead and we could not even cry openly. My mother especially, I noticed, I remember she would always cry secretly because 
my father would say or others that 5,000 people died, he, my brother or my sister were not special, were more, not more valuable than the rest, but thankfully they both survived. And you certainly knew people who did die. Yes, my, uh, I was talking to my family. I was only nine years old when this happened, and I helped the victims of the chemical gas attack. One night I went to bed, nothing, everything was normal. The next day I woke up uh, in Iran where we were living, and I saw hundreds of people on the street and the pavements coughing and uh, lying on the street, and I looked at them. I said, these people are not injured. I was a young nine-year-old boy. I did I did not understand the idea of chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. I thought, why are they lying like homeless people, hundreds of people on the street? But they had been picked up by the Iranian army and dumped on the street in this safer town, or they had walked until they got there. And then my mom made huge a huge pot of tea, and we took out a lot of bread, and we took it to the street to give it to them. And uh, my, I remember my mother told me, don't touch anyone. Mm -hmm. And the people themselves were telling me, don't touch us. So I was leaving the tea and the bread for them on the floor, and they would pick it up. We could not even invite any one of them to come into the house for a shower. Anything they touched was contaminated by the chemical gas that they were carrying on their clothes and blankets mm -hmm. and uh, everything else. Now, you mentioned the Iranians, and of course, people... People do not know uh, the alliances uh, that cross back and forth. Who, who is your who is your friend? Who is your enemy? Who's your ally? And of course, over here we hear the Iranians are the bad people. And uh, so, can you can you give us a little sense of of uh, who the Kurdish people have been allied with in their in their struggle for uh, sovereignty? Well, we unfortunately we had to uh, ally with uh, anyone that supported us. Mm -hmm. But we always made sure not to just take one side forever. We knew that today's ally could be our enemy the next day. So for a while we allied with Iran because Iran was in a war with Iraq and they helped us. And then uh, with the United States and then the Soviet Union and whoever extended the hand of assistance to us, we have accepted in the past. And we had no choice, That's, that was our lot. But I mentioned in the book that uh, the ir current Iranian regime might, might be a bad regime and a thousand criticism might be uh, facing a thousand criticism or human rights violations or whatever the regime is doing now. I mentioned in my book that the world must know that the Iranians saved thousands of lives the day my city was attacked with chemical weapons. My own sister is an example. She and her husband walked until they got collapsed by a river. Iranian army helicopters picked them up, took them to hospital, and then sent them to a refugee camp. My brother was also collapsed. He would have died, but the Iranian army passed by an vehicle, army vehicle, picked him up and brought him back to Iran. So they were good. They, were, they opened the borders. They could have stopped and said, we should let these thousands of people fleeing the chemical attack die on the border. But they opened their arms to the Kurdish people on that specific day and during that tragedy. But 
there are millions of Kurds who live, 8 million Kurds almost, who live in Iran, and they are not living in bad, in good conditions. They have no language or cultural or political rights. They are oppressed in many ways. So we, me saying Iran was good to us during the chemical attack does not deny the fact that 8 million Kurds also have their own ambitions and aspirations inside Iran. So it's very much the enemy of my of my enemy as my friend. That was yeah exactly the case. Iran was the enemy of Iraq. Tried to topple Saddam Hussein's regime, and we all thought they were. It was a good chance to get their money or weapons or to go to their refugee camps whenever we needed. And the other thing uh, complicating uh, the situation, of course, is oil, and a lot of oil, of course, is in Kurdistan. Yes, uh, in the last ten years. A lot of oil and natural gas has been discovered in the Kurdistan region, and uh, that has helped our economy, but it has also been a curse in many ways. I could go on forever about how I wish there was no oil. It's just it's a curse in many countries. It has been a cause of violence and rebellions and all kinds of things. It has not caused us wars or anything, but unfortunately, as soon as we discovered oil and started developing the oil sector in the Kurdistan region, the Iraqi federal government froze all of our budget, all of our share of the medicine and arms supply and security supply and everything. So now you have your oil, you are on your own. And at the same time, every time the Kurdish government sends out a shipment of oil, the Iraqi federal government goes to the international court and says, this oil is illegal. A region or a province is sending oil, selling oil independently. So we are in a bind, really. But we hope the oil after independence will help the Kurdistan region rebuild itself. Because unfortunately, throughout history, the Iraqi government exported the oil, bought the most advanced weapons, and dropped it on us. So the oil was a curse in that way too, mm -hmm. sold to kill us. Now we hope the oil will be used to rebuild Kurdistan in the future. And then the Americans have uh, put themselves into the middle of the of, of the conflict. And of course, that goes back to the, the, to the war with uh, Saddam and, and Kuwait. Uh, what side are they on? The Americans, uh, I think there is, uh, there are great uh, and strong relations between the Kurds and the Americans. The Kurdistan region or the Kurds are one of the few people in the region who have no hostility towards the West, towards Israel, towards America, and we are always blamed for that. The, the neighboring Muslim countries say Kurds have all kinds of relations with the Zionist state. And we, our answer has been, we do not see Israel or America through the Arab lens or through the Iranian lens. We have no problem with them. We are not interested in your historical grudge against the West or the Jewish state or the Americans. So there's this good relation between the Americans and the Kurds. But we also know that the Americans must be more outspoken in their alliance with the Kurds. Since we decided, or the Kurds decided to have to go for a referendum in September, there has been as much pressure from the United States to postpone this referendum as there has been from uh, uh, our neighboring countries, from Iran or Turkey or others. So 
And the Kurdish response is that even myself, I have written and I wrote an article in uh, July, and then my colleagues republished it two days ago. They said it, your article remains relevant until now, because uh, the United States should not ask the Kurds to abandon the Kurdish aspiration for independence. If they can, if they look at the situation in Iraq, which has gotten more violent, more sectarian, and more hostile in the last 15 years. They should never ask the Kurds to split. So the Kurdish uh, uh, affinity uh, with America is out in the open, but the Americans always play all kinds of games. I hope this time they stand; they will stand by the Kurds. You mentioned that you've uh, seen Canadian troops there as well, and there hasn't been a lot of discussion or debate within Canada about what we're doing in Iraq. I mean, we famously said, no, we weren't going to get involved in a war in Iraq. And now, of course, we're, we're working with the Kurds. Can you, can you give us some, a sense of, of, of what you've seen the Canadians doing, what sort of work they're doing, and how involved they are in actual conflict? Uh, yes, uh, the uh, I have been saying or arguing whether on university campus or in an article that will come out next month in the Quill and Choir about my encounter with the Canadians that uh, if there's one good war that the Canadians could join was this war on the side of the Kurds against ISIS because we saw, the whole world saw on their TV screens uh, what ISIS did to many, many civilians in Iraq and Syria, especially the Yazidi community and the Christians, uprooting these ancient communities from their homes. So I thought if Canada had uh, advanced fighter jets and good snipers and good weapons and soldiers, they were much better uh, off or m more needed on the ground in Iraq fighting ISIS and saving these communities than sitting in their military bases in Alberta or these jets under hangars somewhere in Kingston or wherever they might be. If this is a, a just cause, I think the Canadians joined in 2014 and the Kurdish people, the army and the people and the government have been very grateful to the Canadians. I saw them with my own eyes during one of the major offensives one morning. And the, what is interesting is that everyone in Iraq and Kurdistan, they assume every foreign soldier is American. Every plane in the sky is American. And I would remind my colleagues, no, there are 65 countries involved in the global coalition. That plane could be from anywhere. And they said, oh, these, uh, these are American soldiers. I went up and talked to them. They were uh, Canadian, and one of them was the spotter. A spotter is someone who is, finds targets and calls in airstrikes to come and drop their bombs. He was from British Columbia. So I had a short little chat with them, and I saw the two of them were snipers. So they were involved in the actual battle, but not uh, so much as to anger political opponents in Ottawa. It was not actual battle, but they were calling in airstrikes, which is part of their mission. And the snipers also were very uh, effective, I think, on the side of the Kurdish forces. And I r write in the article that Canada should be proud of their snipers and spotters and pilots because they are saving people in their own homelands. People don't want to leave their villages or farms where they have lived for thousands of years. And I know from experience, once they leave, they will never go back. So you better send the Canadian troops or whoever they are to save these people from ISIS 
from being uprooted better than sending them here. Some people or politicians in Ottawa said we must send more humanitarian assistance uh, than military assistance. And I say no. Once they have been uprooted, you could give them a thousand blankets or tents or first aid kit. Does not matter. You should save them from being uprooted in the first place. So you have said that you've witnessed a lot of war since you've been one year old. And uh, and this battle with ISIS, ISIS is by far the worst that you've ever witnessed. Can you give us a sense of who these people are and what they're trying to achieve? Yes, I think ISIS has been the uh, most violent group uh, I have seen or Iraq has seen. But believe me, sometimes I stay to my we my colleagues and I in Kurdistan joke, but we are serious also that there might be groups more violent than ISIS in the future, because every violence that happens, every war that happens, it lays the eggs for a more radical group in the future. But uh, these ISIS fighters, they have shown no mercy to anyone. Muslims, Shias, Sunnis, Christians, Kurds, anyone. And they had in mind to re-establish an Islamic caliphate that existed, God knows when, hundreds of years ago. And uh, it's local disgruntled people, Sunnis who were fired from the army or the government by the current Iraqi government after the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime. And they are also joined by radical Muslims from Canada, Belgium, Spain, Morocco, China, everywhere in the world who have had this dream of establishing an Islamic state, didn't have the chance in their own countries and went there. And some of them, to be honest, are just violent people who have played violent video games all their lives in their basements in Canada or any other country. And suddenly they say, wow, there is a chance to play that in real life. Mm. And because what I've seen there creativity, their invention in finding ways to kill more people. I've been in their bomb factories, in their car bomb factories. I've been in their tunnels they have built. Everything is ingenious. They have come up with a million ways to kill people. And when I saw that, I said, this has nothing to do with anything else, with building a state or building a, an Islamic caliphate or any ideology. This is pure violence and love for killings. The, the, the extent they have gone to build bombs and snipers fire or sniper rifles, mortar shells. The tunnels were so sophisticated, they were like cities underground. Hmm. So when I saw that, I said these people just want to kill and that, that must be their only goal in life. Wow. Your life changed, um, going back to the book, um, when you learned English. How did, how did that happen? Uh, well, English uh, has been, I still love the English language, and I have dictionaries in my bedroom, on my phone, on my iPad, everywhere. There isn't a day that I do, do not ch- check the Oxford English Dictionary. Not for new words, even for words that I've known all my life, I still go back to them. I take pleasure from the English language, and I believe that I wish the whole world spoke English. But uh, And two of my brothers, or three actually, are learning and improving uh, with my encouragement. But it changed uh, for the fact that 
it is a useful language. It might not be very useful. In Canada, it is useful. It, you would find a job easier if you spoke English, but you will definitely find a job easier and much better paid if you are in a non-English speaking country and you speak English. When I learned English, I was always in demand. Journalists wanted me to translate for them uh, when they made documentary films. Uh, NGOs wanted me to work for them. Everyone, not just me, but those who spoke English. But uh, I was always improving my English day after day. For for the, it, for the in the beginning it was not to find the job. For the beginning it was the love of the language. But l much later I realized there is a lot of money in it too, <laughs> and a lot of work. I mean, you've worked for some of the biggest media outlets in the world. Yes, I've uh, worked for uh, I think uh, many TV stations and newspapers in uh, uh, Canada, U.S., U.K. I remember in 2003, CBC used to call me. I, Canada had never crossed my mind then, and they would call me sometimes that they wanted uh, like a report about a specific um, event or explosion or something. And I remember what the, in 2003, Saddam Hussein's two sons were killed by the Americans in a house in Mosul. They were tracked down and they were killed. And I went there a few hours later, and in front of that house, I did 11 live uh, news feeds with 11 TV and radio stations across the world. I don't remember who they are, but I remember they called me from South Africa, Singapore, Ireland, Canada, everywhere in the world. So I was very busy. I was in the heart of the news, and I enjoyed it very much. But uh, it could also be very exhausting, especially not the reporting part, the translation part. I, as a kid, I, my dream was to become a translator. But there came a point, sometimes I was about to drop from exhaustion because it's not uh, easy to translate two mentalities. I realized it was not just translating one sentence from Arabic or Kurdish to English and vice versa. I would find myself between an American or a British journalist and then between a cleric or a tribal leader who they were from two different planets and I had to make them understand. That was the part that I hated most. <laughs> People don't understand that about translation at all. Yeah. That you're you are it's it's an emotional state that you're trying to communicate, not necessarily just words. Yeah, exactly. And in the Middle East they uh, they are sentimental or they use a lot of metaphors and in the West they are more strict, they are more literal about things. They say anything they don't understand, they would say, what do you mean? And then the guy in uh, under a tent or somewhere in Kurdistan or Iraq might answer that with yet another proverb or yet another metaphor and it's really difficult sometimes. I find that actually the case here with uh, with indigenous people as well. Storytelling is different. The way we see the world is different. And uh, sometimes that's very hard to bridge. Um, I think we should maybe end here with um, where you and I met. You were uh, you came to Canada as a refugee. Can you can you give us some background on that um, that choice and why you had to leave and 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 so on? Yes, I came here as a refugee because I, of all the work that I mentioned and all putting myself in dangerous situations and certainly upsetting lots of people across the country with my reporting on uh, sect the sectarian violence, on abductions of innocent people. And uh, Canada was one place that uh, 
uh, I found the safety and the peace that I needed after so many years of covering war. And uh, I slowly started building uh, my life here. And it was far from everything else. Canada is a, is a place to go if you need peace of mind and security and also uh, a place that would embrace you. Well, I have to say we're very honored to be your publisher. And um, I'm hoping that your book, Being Kurdish in a Hostile World, gets, gets read around the world. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity for this interview and for publishing the book. Let me tell you the story of how I met Ayub and how we came to publish the book. I was on the board of Penn Canada, the writer's organization that helps imprisoned writers around the world. Ayub came to Penn as a refugee from Iraq. We met, we talked, we hung out, we had some fun, and he told me a story. When I got this gig in Regina as publisher of University of Regina Press, I called him up and I said, Ayub, you should write me a book. And he said, Somebody else already asked me to do that. And I said, who is it? He couldn't remember. I said, well, write the book for me. And he said, okay. That's how the book happened. A couple years later, I was at a meeting in London at the London Book Fair. And I'm presenting all the titles that we have coming up over the next few years to publishers who may want to buy the rights to them and publish them in their own territory. I was sitting down with George Gibson, legendary publisher of Bloomsbury, one of my publishing heroes. And he comes across being Kurdish in a hostile world. And he goes, Ayub Nuri? I know Ayub Nuri. I asked Ayub Nuri to write a book for me. And he's writing a book for you. <laughs> so not only did we scoop Bloomsbury, but we're publishing into the zeitgeist. And this is what we want to do in publishing land. We want to have our books come out just as they speak to this moment in history. And with the Kurdish national referendum happening at the end of September in 2017, and our book in the marketplace two weeks in advance of that, we've hit that mark right on the nose. Being Kurdish in a hostile world. Read it. It's in bookstores now. And that's it for episode three of How Books Happen. I'm Bruce Walsh. Catch you next time.